I'm always impressed how open everyone is to learning new things. This is good. Let's keep that up. Don't lose that. Um, this summer, we are marching our way through First and Second Samuel. Uh, the lectionary, the revised common lectionary that gives us a three-year cycle of texts, I don't always listen to, but sometimes I try and uh, follow it. And certainly, with the prompting of our great music director, I do what I can to follow it. And over the summer months, they give you an opportunity to read texts, to do a series of readings through the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And since we don't often get enough of that, I've decided, as I did last summer, we went through Genesis. This summer, uh, we're now going through First and Second Samuel. I hope you're enjoying it so far. Maybe by the end of the summer, you'll be like, no more First and Second Samuel. Okay. I take from my text this morning the seventh verse of the eighth chapter of the book of First Samuel. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Please pray with me. Holy God, be with us in this time ahead, that we may receive your word. We focus our energy on you. Amen. As a Christian... I have to admit that there was something about the 2008 presidential election that bothered me. It wasn't the message of any of the candidates that I found so disturbing. It wasn't even the unprecedented amount of money spent, although that was and is a massive problem. What bothered me was the savior complex that was projected on Barack Obama. Do you remember that? There was this prevailing notion that the election of Barack Obama would solve everything. Barack Obama ran on a platform of hope and unity, and Americans, by and large, bought into it 100%. You have money troubles? Don't worry, I've got one word for you, Obama. Relationship problems? Obama. Have one pesky neighbor who keeps playing music too loudly at 2 a.m.? Obama. Obama's election would usher in a new era of American cooperation. It proved that we as a nation were post-racial. We were beyond race and racial hang-ups, right? Remember the excitement of that inauguration? Obama, the politician with only a couple of years' experience on a national level, would solve everything. And it wasn't just Americans that believed this. Obama received the Nobel Peace Prize for, well, just getting elected and not being a neocon like George W. Bush. All this hoopla bothered me. It was as though people had pegged all of their hopes and dreams on the shoulders of one fallible human being. Now, that's not to say that Obama was not talented. He certainly was and is. But there was that frenzy over his election. We saw a similar phenomenon in 2016. Those people who supported Donald Trump were not just supporters. They were fanatical about their candidate. He was their man. The red MAGA hat became a cultural icon as much as the Obama hope image had been eight years before. And you can easily see the appeal of Donald Trump. Here was someone who didn't talk like a politician with all of that professional spin. He talked straight and to the people through his Twitter account. There was no one who would claim he was perfect, and few would claim he was always truthful, but there was a certain authenticity to him. Americans across the political spectrum decried the role of money in politics, and here was a candidate who promised to self-fund his campaign. He would be beholden to no donor or special interest. People were tired of the dysfunction in Washington and the cronyism and elitism of the place. They longed for an outsider who would shake things up. 
People were worn out of a society that seemed to be overrun by political correctness. They wanted someone who was proudly and unapologetically not politically correct, who could speak of the changes and losses in American society in a way with, that resonated with many who felt that their country had left them and their, de- and their demographic behind. People wanted a freewheeling America, led by a freewheeling businessman, who could return the country to prosperity and the dynamism of the 1920s when the president then declared that the business of America is business. Now, like in 2008, one of the things that alarmed me in 2016 as a Christian was this notion that one person could solve the issues. One person could be the answer to complex problems. One person, moreover, who seemed to have, at best, a poor grasp of of public policy and who surrounded himself with political neophytes. You know what I'm talking about? Did you notice that same phenomenon? Did that disturb you in the same way, either in 08 or 16? I'm fascinated by the reason why. Why we do that. Why do we look to a savior who can solve everything when logically we should know that it takes more than that? It's a broadly human phenomenon. Part of it lies in the fact that we like simple solutions. When confronted with difficult issues, issues that stretch our minds and our ways of thinking, it's easier to focus on one person, one thing that will resolve everything. Who wants to deal with the complexities of globalism and its impact on American workers and society when you can convince yourself that one election will change everything? If you're a coal miner in West Virginia, it's easier to blame environmental regulations for a job loss than tackle the tricky issues of the changing nature of energy and the impact of global warming. But it's more than that. It's more than just simply wanting, or more than just wanting simple solutions. There's a spiritual element to this as well. Humans want something, someone to worship. We want to hand things over to a power greater than ourselves. We, as human beings, seek objects of devotion. For all our talk about democracy and individualism, we also secretly want to live in an authoritarian world. In places we don't talk about at parties, we want Big Brother to tell us what to do. Pinning our hopes on one person or thing is not only simpler but it feeds a deep spiritual need within us. It's remarkable that both the American left and right claim that the other side wants an authoritarian, totalitarian government. Have you noticed that? And maybe they're both right, because maybe that's what we want on some level. We want to endure, adore one thing that will just make it all better. And this feeling, this phenomenon, is hardly limited to just politics. In fact, I claim it's far more frequent outside of politics. How often do we focus on the one thing that can deliver us? The one thing that can save it all and make it all right. If only I had this, then all would be well. It can grow into an obsession and cloud our thinking. And I'm certainly guilty of this. I'll sit around with my friends, who are also single. We'll be lounging in one of my friends' living rooms and we'll think, gosh, if we just had a significant other, we'd be all good. What about that guy you went on a date with last week? Oh, him? He had this one small flaw. Clearly, it could never work out. Wouldn't it be great to be married, to have a partner? Then everything would be solved. We all nod in agreement. Yep, that's it. Isn't that right, all you married folks out there? Doesn't marriage solve everything? No problems afterwards. Or sometimes we get fixed on one item or several items. 
I really need that new set of clothes, that in item that I can't really afford. That would make me one of the, the that would really make me one of the popular cool kids. I'd hop in my souped-up car and roll down the main drag with my Ray-Ban wayfarers resting effortlessly on the bridge of my nose, and all the people would wish, would whisper, "That John, cool cat, he's got it all figured out." <laughs> Only I had that new car. Only I had a better house and a better location, like all those other people I know. If only I had a new job, the job I deserve, and with all the money that goes with it, all the problems would be solved. But I need it. I need that one thing. You. What does everyone else have that seemingly solves their life problems, but you lack? How much focus do you put on it? I remember when I was in my final year of divinity school, I was so stressed out. I was in the midst of a job search. Nobody likes that. Searching for a job can be the most humbling and discouraging process there is. You put together the best resume, you have all the right references, you carefully look for the perfect fit in a company or an organization, you send out your info and wait, and wait, and wait until you get that rejection. That year I was also trying to finish up a heavy course load at Divinity School. I was working through my ordination requirements, I was finishing up the book that I wrote on missionaries on the side. On top of it all, my father was dying of cancer. I remember saying to myself again and again, once I get through this, everything will be better. Once I get through this, my life will be so much easier. I won't be stressed out. My close friends had to hear, had to hear me complain about it constantly, on repeat. Yet did my stress stop once I graduated? Was everything better once I had that job? Things improved, for sure. But somehow I found other ways to stress myself out. Other things filled in the void. That one thing I kept stressing over, getting out of, getting out of divinity school, didn't solve everything. The prophet Samuel had a hard time disguising his disappointment. After a lifetime of helping guide the tribes of Israel, members of the different tribes kept telling him he was not enough. They wanted something else to solve everything. Samuel had a tough job, for sure. There were 12 different tribes, each with their own leaders and interests. What bound them together was a shared history and mutual allegiance to Yahweh and the cult of Israel. Samuel, as a judge of Israel, was looked to as the de facto leader and arbiter of things in Israel. When problems arose, Samuel fixed them. He was wise, respected, and had special insight into God and God's will for the people of Israel. And yet, in spite of all that, People clamored for a king. Samuel tried to say that wasn't the way. It wasn't how Israel operated. People didn't seem to care. He pointed out the flaws of kingships and the errors uh, of Israel's neighbors, and that seemed to have no effect. The people wanted a king. They wanted to be like the other nations. If they only had a king, they would be powerful and respected. If they only had a king, all of their national problems would be solved. They kept pressing. So Samuel turned his attention to God. God, why are your people rejecting me? What have I done wrong? Why don't they see their problems for what they are rather than seeking the easy, simple way out? God's response is one of the more fascinating disses from God, and it cut, cuts right to the heart of the matter. God summed up exactly what was behind this all-too-human phenomenon. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you.
That was it, according to God. When people turn to one thing, one leader, one object, one change that will solve everything, what they are actually doing is turning that object into a god, into something to worship. The great mid-century, mid-20th century UCC theologian H. Richard Niebuhr, the younger brother of Reinhold Niebuhr, wrote a book entitled Radical Monotheism and Western Culture. In that book, Niebuhr argued that to have faith in something is to make that thing a center of value. That which we value most is what we put our faith in. As such, Niebuhr argued, most Christians were not true monotheists. We do not worship one God, but many. Even good Christians were what he called henotheists. They might worship God, but they also worshiped other things alongside God. People might have as their center of value success, family, work, material goods, relationships, Whatever it is for us, we almost certainly have as our center of value things other than just God. In our text for today, the root problem is that the people of Israel have put their faith in a king. The king will solve their issues. A king is what they really need. They put their desire for a king above their allegiance to God, even though Samuel warns them of what a king might mean. H. Richard Niebuhr wonders what it would be like if Christians embraced a radical monotheism. Think about that for a moment. Radical monotheism. What would happen if we truly did worship God above all else? What would it look like for you in your life if God was indeed the center of your value, your true center of value? How would it change how you went about your daily life? It's no surprise that today we live in fractured times. We read, every day in the, in, we read every day in every paper how we are divided. On both sides of nearly every issue, we get daily warnings of doom and destruction. These warnings rile us up and disturb us. Just the other day, I had to turn off the radio in my car because I was getting too worked up over yet one more thing that was going wrong in our country. One more injustice that was, insult, that was assaulting my very soul. I could not take it any longer. I was being filled with anger, not love, resentment, not understanding. So I turned the radio off. How many times has that happened to you recently? How many times has that happened? Uh, how often have you had to shut out the world so as not to feel like you're being assaulted? In the silence of my car, I reflected on how unchristian like my emotions had become. In the midst of those emotions, it can be easy to state that if things were different, if we had a different president or different leadership, then all would be well. Some days I can find myself so fixated on it that it seems to consume my very being. I find myself elevating one political party, one, view, one viewpoint, as the sole solution to what is wrong, as though the right result in one midterm election will solve everything. That's why this passage has been so humbling for me to consider this week. Maybe my center of value has been a little off. Maybe I've, been, maybe I've been putting too much faith in politics and not enough faith in God. This is not to say that I or we should be undisturbed by some of the things happening in our country right now. The separation of families on our southern border and the incarceration of children is a moral affront. It should justifiably offend every Christian and person of good morals. There are ways to enforce laws, even laws that we believe are unjust, in a manner that shows compassion and leaves people with basic dignity. 
The rolling back of environmental regulation bothers me deeply, and I feel it should. I care for our environment, and I fear what will happen to people's health and safety without proper regulations. I'm deeply concerned about our broken health care system and its implications for people's lives. I worry about our ballooning national debt in a time of economic prosperity. I am angered by the demonization of the poor and the seeming lack of compassion for those who are struggling to get by in our nation. All these things are deeply worrying to me, and I believe they should be. But it's the next step in my mind where I worry I might have wandered off God's path. I zero in on one thing, one change, one solution, as though that would solve everything. I personally, I'm just speaking for myself here, I pretend that without Trump, all would be well. Even though I know that things were not well before Trump and won't be well after he's gone, whenever that will be. This text calls on me to consider what radical monotheism in times like these would look like. I would argue the same thing holds true regardless of your political party or which news shows you binge watch. The issues that anger you might be different, but that obsession on one thing, one person, one change can so often be the same. The more I think about it, the more I realize that my main focus, especially in these days, must remain on God. That, it seems to me, is the one way that we can maintain both our love for everyone, including our opponents, and our empathy for those who are suffering. It is the key for how to keep the faith in these divided times. If I focus on God, if I turn my attention and prayer life to God, if I look to God in my daily life, I'm reminded that in spite of the difficulties, and in spite of how worked up I might be, God still persists. That's not to say that all will be well by turning to God, but it does give me hope. And when I'm aware of God's presence, it gives me an immense sense of peace. God is working through those of good faith who are struggling for justice in the world, wherever they might be. It's not up to me or any of us. It's a collective effort. A collective effort that will continue to grow stronger the more we, are, the more we call people back to God. I'm reminded of Mahatma Gandhi, who, though he was in the midst of a great struggle for justice for his people, always found at least an hour a day for weaving. There he was. When people, when people suffered and he could have been lost and missed worshiping his own cause, he's, there he was, turning his attention to the divine, to the oneness that holds us all together and unites us in the cause. It was that attention to God, embodied in that hour of weaving, that allowed Gandhi to persist and carry on the struggle for justice year after year, decade after decade, through, through imprisonment and abuse. Now is the time, as much as any other, when we really have to focus on developing a regular devotional practice like Gandhi's to help us stay connected to God. Now is the time when we need the perspective of God and not to be worn down by the divisions and recriminations around us. Now is the time when we need to be aware of when we worship that which is not God, when we clamor for a king, so we can check ourselves and return to God. Now is the time when our relationship with God will give us the peace we need as the storms of life. Focus on God, not a king. Radical monotheists. Find peace in the solace of the divine. Only the people of Israel have been able to hear that.